Remember, you're in 1982. The time machine has brought you back. This is part two of the Q-Phil story, the Q-Phil album, my debut album with my band back in 1982. This is part two. It's uh, episode 46 and a half. I don't think I've ever done a half ever before. This is episode 46 and a half, the Q-Phil special, the second part of the story of the Q-Phil album. And the 80s were a pretty special time, weren't they? So um, we have to give it a lot of reverence. Now, on the first show, we went through side one and a lot of the stories about uh, making the beginning of the Q-Phil record. This is the side two, uh, four tracks on side two on a vinyl album. I'm going to play you those tracks and uh, try and dig in into all the memories I can remember about making that second side of the Q Phil album and any other paraphernalia that um, comes around those thoughts. Um, side two started with again DIH. What does that stand for? Dancing in Heaven. Not Dancing in Heaven, oh baby Bebop. It's Dancing in Heaven, Orbital Bebop. We started side two uh, again with our big hit at that time. Big hit, underground hit that nobody really knew about, but it was massive in Los Angeles. Now, let me give you a bit of the history about uh, Dancing in Heaven, because I think this will all add up to you understanding when you hear the song what it had done for us. Me and Brian, uh, two lads in London, uh, hoping for big success. Dancing in Heaven reached the US Club dance charts at number 18 and it was bubbling under the hot hundred at number 10 to us that was like my god something is happening here and in the hot dance music uh, singles chart it reached 44 now to us uh, back then well we'd had no success at all at songwriters so when jive told us our record company and publisher zomba said you these numbers are beginning to appear well we thought we are rock stars well we weren't were we really but we started to believe now you probably know if you follow q phil and a few of you do that the song was in girls just want to have fun that movie that appeared in 1985 and in 1989 it was re-released i think a minneapolis station was playing it and everybody got excited again and it hit for the first time in the top 100 of the billboard charts at number 75 i thought oh at this late stage, we're beginning to roll. So it hit 75 in the top 100 of the um, Billboard charts. But in Europe, back home, my home country and Europe, nothing at all, absolutely nothing. Although we did hear that in a gay club in London called Heaven, uh, it was a big success, Dancing in Heaven, in a club called, a very famous club actually called Heaven. It was doing very, very well. LA, uh, extremely strong. LA uh, Kiss FM, the radio station, they championed the record and played it nonstop stop as did the famous k-rock station with richard blade the very famous uh, uh dj he also championed the record and in 2007 believe it or not the retro comedy kicking it old school uh dancing in heaven was featured in that a lot of movies actually was featured in and also recently in season three of episode two of sex education and i think that was recorded filmed in england so i feel good about that that the song had come back to its home a little bit of success there now 
now i think you all know you can see it on youtube how embarrassing uh we did perform dancing in heaven on eurovision in 1982 the eurovision song contest which my god it's become so successful it's a massive thing now it wasn't in our day but it was quite big but in uh, 1982 we were the first band on uh, the show to play the song i'll tell you a little bit about, about that later but a few tidbits are that when we finished the show we actually uh, got 59 points i'm not sure out of what but i know we got 59 points and we finished um six out of eight which isn't really very good uh, for the first two rounds we were top which scared us shitless now i'm just about to play you the album track of uh dancing in heaven which started side two very unusual beginning it's a kind of classical beginning that we uh, we did uh, very buggles like because we were very influenced by trevor horn and the band buggles we wanted a melodic and classical intro we thought this is quite classy i'm playing fretless bass brian fairweather doing all the guitar parts and uh, chris richardson playing beautiful piano we thought if we could just simulate what the themes were going to be up front and then go into this uh, extremely energetic uh, new wave uh, techno song it would be quite cool so this is a rarity really because on f- um, future albums that were released of qfil they do not put this version on so this is the version that was on the very 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 first uh, qfil pressing of the album um very unusual to hear but very exciting to play it to you because it hasn't been heard for a long time this is side two uh this is a radio owl's nest special about the qfil album and this is dancing in heaven orbital bebop with an unusual intro
That's the original album version of Dancing in Heaven um, with the classical intro on the front. Later on, as the album became repressed, um, that version was never heard again, which is a great shame. So I'm, I'm very pleased to play that to you with the classical beginning on the on the beginning. Now, I'm just going to do a stream of consciousness uh, thinking about this, uh, this track. There's so many things um, that are coming to mind here. Now, remember, back in 1982, um, as I said on, on the on the first, uh, uh, special um, Qfil were changing from being really a reggae <laughs> ska kind of punk band into this uh, band that had a techno feel because all the technology was changing and I felt like we needed a change and at that time I was very influenced by the Tubes and Ultravox and the Tubes album I think it was called Completion Backward Theory I thought was superb and you can hear um, with uh, my influence of Ultravox and we all stood still the groove and um, the bass riffs and the tempo I was very turned on by that although I wanted the funk and now listening back to the track if you listen to the chorus you can hear that the bass breaks up and just does a um, a seventh to the root and it's very funky though very Bootsy Collins and really I was remembering that um, uh, I never thought I'd get my feet this far uh, feet don't fail me now by um, uh, little feet it was all American all American everything that was touching me with Qfil was although we were going through the uh, technology change of the 80s I thought I still want the funk and the rock and the energy of America so if you listen to the bass really on the chorus you can feel it's a bit of George Clinton coming in because of the um, syncopation and listen to the uh, keyboard stabs on the verses that's very Tom Tom Club. I remember with Brian we said let's uh, use the Jupiter 8 and the OBX 8 and make modulation happen on these chords and do a Tom Tom Club, Talking Heads kind of vibe. Uh, the live toms that Trevor's playing, all the ambient stuff that's happening in the middle eight and the bridges. Well, I remember that Mike Shipley had a new microphone that he just found out about where you pinned it onto the walls of the studio, a long way away from the drums. Um, just pin them onto the walls and catch all this ambience. I remember that's why we got that kind of Phil Collins kind of sound and Brian Fairweather's uh, guitar solo right at the end of the 12 inch uh, mix it's uh, bending notes and I think we went through an even tied um, echo unit or reverb unit or effects unit that made uh, the notes go into octaves and fourths and so you have that kind of really strange kind of solo on the end yes we were trying to be modern there and believe it or not Trevor Thornton our live drummer that's everything on Dancing in Heaven is played live people don't believe that but that performance there is totally live and Trevor our drummer had to score it all out because we said we went to his house I think he lived in Farnham um, just outside London and we uh, rehearsed him on the track and we said play everything really tight no cymbals if you can help it keep the kick drum going this has to have a feeling of dance but right at the end we're going to go bap bap like earth wind of fire and he had to write that down so if you listen to the 12 inch you can hear it there that right at the end we have an accent that goes sabat sabat and uh, trevor thank god after playing for six minutes remembered that um what a reader what a player now at that time uh or just before that in the late 70s everything about space was so important wasn't it uh with uh, with pop songs space oddity david bowie we had rocket man with elton john starman again from uh, Bow uh, bowie so Really, uh, going into space uh, was very special. And I, th I thought about the bebop, swing music. My mum loved swing music. Glenn Miller 
and so when I wrote uh, Dancing in Heaven, you can see by the lyrics, I was trying to get this kind of funky but sense of bebop, the old days, the swing. And in fact, the single, the 45, that was released in England, they had two dancers from the 40s uh, on the cover of the single, Imposed Against Space. Um, so I thought, yes, that's what I'm trying to get, is swing, funk, uh, and 10,000 miles above L- L.A. If you listen to the uh, uh, verse lyrics, I w- wanted this. I really wanted this to be a hit in uh, Los Angeles, and by God, it was. So uh, 10,000 miles above L.A., I will boogie. And uh, that was the idea of trying to attract America. I always thought that Q-Phil was an American uh, band, and I wanted really to start from there. Uh, you can hear so many horn accents on this techno uh, uh, new wave English record I mean there's a lot of horns going on and uh, we do two B sections with horn riffs played by uh, Chris Richardson our keyboard player and uh, and this if you listen very carefully these are all just little tidbits the second uh, section he plays uh, there is a a fluff there there's a mistake he just fluffs a note so put your headphones on and listen for that I was reminded that uh, all those little scats around the uh, choruses when I'm singing very freeform, almost rapping, I remember when we, when we finished the song, I thought, we just need to keep the energy up, but we need to do that thing which uh, pop music does, uh, M on pop music, you know, pop music, pop music. He was given a, a little bit of essence of um, energy all around with his um, um, almost rapping, speaking. And so I thought, I want to try that. And actually, that's what uh, really led us on to slow, slow, quick, quick, slow. Again, swing right at the beginning. People tend to remember that slow, slow, quick, quick, slow. Uh, my mother and father loved that because they danced slow, slow, quick, quick, slow back in the 40s. Now, what we used on that record, uh, synthesizer-wise, with OBX, Oberheim uh, 8 and uh, Jupiter 8. And we went into London. I can't remember his name. I wish I could. We went down to Oxford Street to, me- to meet this guy who programmed keyboards for Queen. He knew how to get the sounds you wanted. And so we went and paid him... Uh, 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 for about two hours to program the sounds that I knew I wanted and Brian wanted from the demos. So we sat with him and said, Angel sounds, uh, uh, sounds of a, uh, of a spaceship uh, landing and taking off, sounds of rushes, sounds of this, that, that, that. And we had all these notes and he did it brilliantly and we programmed it into the keyboard. So when we went to do the record, we knew what knobs to hit, what programs to hit. Say, Angels was on program 42 bang we hit it and with the demo i'd worked out that the 16 track um track sheet uh, ahead of time so i knew where the drums were going to be if we did live drums and you record uh, maybe 12 tracks bring them down to two uh bring your vocals 16 tracks down to two make sure you've got pads going down to two uh, make sure your guitar from six are going down to one or two so we worked out ahead of time everything because you only had two days we did dancing in heaven in two days we recorded all the music in one day all played live no sequencing and we mixed it through the night so after really 24 hours the record was made ah they don't do that these days do they no you can sit there for 15 years now when we were in the studios battery studios doing this record um robert mutlang the very famous 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 huge uh, producer that worked with jive and zomba publishing did def leppard and uh, shania twain everything that was successful uh, i think back in black 
uh, ACDC. He was in there painting the studio. They said he could never go home. He loves to be in the studio. And he heard what we were doing, and he said, very good, lads. Make sure you mix it bright for America. That was his tip to us from Robert Mutlang. Mix it bright. The Yanks love bright music. And we did, as you can tell. Now, you might all... I'm sure you're all wondering that great big whoosh right at the beginning of the of the song. Of uh, Dancing in Heaven. That's a plectrum dragged across a an acoustic piano. The strings. We opened the top of a piano and we scraped plectrum across a couple of strings and made it, uh, brought it up from the low to the high and put loads of reverb on it. So that's how you do uh, that effect right at the beginning of the song. Now, Q-Phil was really two people, Brian and me in the band, uh, with Trevor and uh, Chris uh, augmenting us. So when we did the when I did the vocals, it was just me and Brian and the engineer. Brian used to give me hell uh, as I sang it. I remember singing Dancing in Heaven. He was saying, do it again, do it again, do it again. So when he came to sing uh, uh, Time Waits for No One in Red Light Zone, I gave him real hell. Do it again 3,000 times. So those are my spur-of-the-moment thoughts about that big song, Dancing in Heaven, that actually brought me to America and was a passport for me getting into the studios with Earth, Wind & Fire because Maurice White, the leader of Earth, Wind & Fire, was very interested in that song. And also Bernie Taupin said, that sounds quite interesting. I don't mind uh, working with that songwriter, Martin Page. And that led to We Built the City in These Dreams. So Dancing in Heaven was... uh, my real passport into america now track two on side two is a track called heroes never die oh god there's so much uh, history about this track um <laughs> i think probably i should tell you everything about it after because we've been talking for such a long time and we need some music uh, but i will tell you that this is written about um the second world war and my father being involved with british aerospace in fact, he was involved with Supermarine that uh, developed the Spitfire for the Second World War later in his career. So this song is written about the pilots that were flying over to Germany and trying to come back over the white cliffs of Dover and survive. Very romantic, but also very funky. And now that is a strange mixture, isn't it? Heroes Never Die was quite a special song for me to write on an acoustic piano in my little flat in Ockenden Road. Um, the first time, I think, uh, for Q-Phil, that we were becoming something more than just a dance band. I remember going to the BBC Library for sound effects for the intro of this song. Heroes Never Die, track two, Q-Phil.
Heroes Never Die Track 2 on the Q-Fill album um, here going through a special about this album on Radio Owl's Nest um, so many memories with that song really so many memories um, in fact uh, when I wrote this uh, uh, Heroes Never Die I thought this is the first time as I said Q-Fill are getting into this kind of melodic place it's very thematic Every, all the keyboards you can hear there are melodic lines but how many times how many times have you heard a, a pilot rap no it's not a thing you actually hear all the time it's unusual to have that pilot's rap and uh, my father wrote out all these words for me of what a pilot or a bomber would be going bomber pilot would be getting going through uh, on a uh, a mission coming home on a bomber's moon that kind of stuff so all that uh, or everything i'm rapping there is what my father wrote down for me about um uh, again what pilots would be dealing with and saying uh, as they flew now also in the uh, in the uh, breakdown you've got a pilot talking saying get get out of there get out of there there's a bandit on your tail well that's not me that's brian and it's uh, ironic really brian's a scotsman and yet and yet he sounds incredibly english here um it did a great job i think um um when he did it uh, in the studio we all thought he could have been an english pilot in the second world war no doubt um they might have failed him though not because of his eyesight but because he was scottish just for that reason anyway um <laughs> sorry brian sorry 
Uh, he also, Brian, reminded me that that sound effect on the voice that sounded like he is speaking through a radio, that was through a piping, a piping from a Hoover machine that, you, that was being used to clean the studio, clean the carpets. We actually did that through a piping from the Hoover, he told me, um, which is, I, I've totally forgotten, but he said, Pagey, that's a vacuum cleaner that I'm doing it through. So I totally forgot that, but that, uh, that get out of there, get out of there, is by a Scotsman through a vacuum uh, machine. <laughs> Bizarre, hey? Um, the start of the song is a very, very rare drum machine that I had in this in my house. Well, in my flat, um, it's, it was the first Roland drum machine ever made, a CR88. Um, you hear it a lot with Phil Collins. It was the only drum machine really that was happening at that point of any consequence. So we used that on the beginning. That's all Trevor's live drum playing. Now, uh, again, as I said on the first uh, special, we did a lot of the tracks at Tapestry Studios with. John Congress on a Fairlight sampler. Um, but we rebelled at this point and said to the record company, we need a live track, we want Trevor. And they weren't happy at all about this. They really fought us. But we st- stood our ground and we said, we want Trevor to play this. And I think that's why it has such a good feel and jumps out a little bit on the album, is a little bit different. And I'm playing slap bass, real bass here, not sequence bass. I remember that I loved uh, Louis Johnson from the Brothers Johnson and he played a Music Man bass and I just loved the sound of those they just had this incredible um sound when you slap them very uh, like a drum and compressed so we hired a um a music man bass a stingray and that's me playing the slap bass throughout the track brian and i were very influenced by robert palmer's album clues at that time and the way he sang very 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 innovative record that so on the middle eight um brian said uh, do a bit of that robert palmer kind of um character singing which was on clues so my voice in the middle eight i'm really do- trying to emulate that great vibe that robert palmer uh used at that point um it's interesting because i think my vocals were really beginning to come together at this point this is one of the songs i felt like ah yes i'm getting it together getting my shit together my voice is beginning to resonate to me and i could put more emotion into it so heroes never die on um i think really shows that uh i think in a way i was going to develop into the lead singer and a lead singer of some sorts and become a songwriter i think this track shows that in a lot of ways getting back to the rap on this song i know that the uh the record company went like oh i don't know about a rap and i think we did a mix without the rap on which they sent to uh the radio stations in england now we had a huge promoter supposedly the greatest record promoter at that point and he was taking it around to bbc and all the radio stations and we got absolutely no bites at all and uh, although when he heard it he said i think i can break this this is a great track he came back to us and we were so flummoxed and upset that we weren't getting any anything happening in england he said well it's because of the falklands war and because it sounds like your pilots are in trouble (laughs) and you may have died i said no it's heroes never die they come back and he was saying well the problem is the the radio stations don't want to play this song during the falklands war and i think one of our big ships had been sunk at the falklands and so they said there but they stood they went away from their song they said we can't touch that in fact i think if they had played it it would have been stimulating and i think the other side of the coin here i think heroes never die would have been a record that people would have listened to at that point and maybe thought um uh, well got behind it and got behind the uh, what we were doing so 
so I think, although he said, the promoter and the record company, it's a shame you're releasing this in the middle of the Falklands War, I was like, well, maybe it's a good thing we are. It's a positive song, really, but uh, that's water under the bridge anyway. About the actual recording of the song, you can hear on the on the snare, it's a quite interesting sound on the backbeat. That's a Simmons drum, an electric drum, that we were beginning to discover through that period. And all the background vocals are being distorted, um, and uh, that was unusual for us, and, uh, and, and quite unusual at that time, but Peter Gabriel was doing a lot of it, and I think I was very influenced by that sound, um, putting the vocals to a little pig nose amp. Um, so the background vocals are um, distorted. I want to mention here as well a big band to us that influenced us in a, in a kind of, I should say... Um, cerebral way and minimal way was orchestra maneuvers in the dark um joan of arc's track and we liked the way that uh, orchestra maneuvers approached their music and i think if you look into the melodic content on this song you'll uh, you'll pick up on a little bit of that the orchestra maneuvers in the dark had very thematic kind of keyboards now heroes never die i think is such an important record for me and brian at this point in some ways more than dancing in heaven because we thought that uh, our next single shouldn't be going for it which you'll hear you heard on uh, the side one on special one because we thought that's a, a dance track we want to be seen more in that kind of songwriter place big country and that there was more to us and so the record um, company who wanted to go for go for it um, we basically when we came to America said no we're gonna fight to put out heroes never die we want heroes never die out and they just couldn't understand us luckily in America with Diane Poncher my manager and Bob Cavallo uh, who she was linked to earlier Earthwind and Fires management, they stepped in and they they spoke to Clive Calder and said, um, you know, this is we're going to handle this band, Qfield, and we want them to put out Heroes Never Die, which was a great thing for us. And um, we threatened that we would uh, basically leave the company if we didn't. Um, uh, have Heroes Never Die come out. Also, Dancing in Heaven had never had a de- uh, had a video, which is unbelievable, really, because if Dancing in Heaven had had a video when when um, MTV was happening right at that point, I believe that Dancing in Heaven would have become a top 20 hit in America, and they just not, would not give us a video. They did not want to see us on in visuals, and yet they pushed us for um, the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, <laughs> and I would only do the Eurovision Song Contest if we looked bizarre, like the tune and we could get two girl models to dance seductively next to me on my left and right. That's the only way I would do it if we came across, not as a normal band, but as a bizarre band. Um, Anyway, getting back to Heroes Never Die, um, they did give us a video on Heroes Never Die, which Diane, my manager, and Bob Cavallo arranged, and we went and did a video on Earth, Wind & Fire soundstage at the Complex in Los Angeles, their big live room where they would practice their tours wonderful wonderful stuff and uh, we made the video um and uh, remember about the video if you look very carefully at the end of the video uh, uh, when we as pilots return the uh, the waf the lady uh, uh, air force lady who is so pleased to see me she puts the airplane down on the map in front of me and she puts it on there upside down upside down um and <laughs> i just gave her a look like what the fuck are you doing? The pl- you put the plane up. And uh, we, we kept that. And she does a little coy look. And it was a good way to finish uh, finish the video. I always remember that I was very, very uh, superstitious in those days. And if you look at the air commander in the video, he's rubbing out my name, Paige, on the blackboard. And I thought, not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. Uh, st- I still remember that thinking. Shouldn't have rubbed it out. What's going to happen? Um, now, we're doing the video in America. We didn't have Trevor Thornton or Chris Richardson with us. 
so we had to get two other guys to be with us in the video um, I think the drummer played with Frank Zappa for a period of time um, and uh, we um, we put the we so we looked like we had the band together that's what uh, two Americans joined us for that uh, also I thought the mix that we did in England was um, good but not right for America and so we were able to get the great George Massenberg Earth Wind and Fire's uh, engineer to mix with us um, I think he regretted that for the rest of his life um, uh, but we thought let's get a more of a rockier um, a more American mix so the single mix in America was by George Massenberg um, more pointed in many ways and a little bit more aggressive and um, George uh, Massenberg was a great developer of uh, boards his own boards were automated and he said I'll do this mix if you let me uh, uh, do your mix for the uh, on this automated board the first experimental board he'd made so we didn't see much of him because he was always underneath the board uh, uh, working with wires we just saw his legs a lot anyway he we thought he would really understand how intense we were and he said oh, I'll mix it in a day well we took him to I think four days and uh, he went insane insane he couldn't believe we were so disciplined or tight and he'd worked with uh, Bruce White and he said you're going to drive me crazy guys because we kept on going nearly it's nearly there uh, and George would go it sounds great and go no but just give us another two days um, nearly there so um, <laughs> George was a friend of ours when we went in and when we came out he just looked at us like we were from another planet um, we are of course friends and George did a great mix a great mix we just took him to the limit of insanity um, the record did nothing it got onto VH1 in America I think it was played on Kiss FM once and they played Dancing in Heaven non-stop so this change in our direction did not seem to appeal to anybody I think they wanted us in, ref in, in reflection now I probably would have said yes possibly we should have gone with Go For It because we'd have got back into the club dance tracks and then we could slowly change to a new direction but we want we believe believed we were songwriters and we had to move quite quickly so uh, we went for uh, Heroes Never Die. Unfortunately um, the rest of the world didn't want us to change. <laughs> And in fact, that was the record that actually, in a lot of ways, allowed us to get away from our record company eventually and become songwriters, uh, Brian and myself, in Los Angeles for a while, because we thought, we're not going to break the band with this with this uh, Jive Records. They just couldn't really quite understand what we were. And um, it was a great shame, but we had negotiated to get away from Jive. And I think Heroes Never Die was our freedom track for me and Brian, a freedom track to uh, get the men in suits to leave us alone and to vanish into the mist. Um, so that's what I can remember at this point about Heroes Never Die, a very, very important track for me. As Dancing in Heaven is, Heroes Never Die to me also resonates as a um, very special um, time in my career. But P.S., there's a few other little thoughts that just came into my head then. Uh, on the video, I really like the um, uh, moment when uh, the camera goes down into this church and you see this kid with the light coming through the stained glass window uh, when we do that, um, uh, do our breakdown. I think that's a, a pretty emotional part of that video. The rest of it is me screaming in an airplane thinking I'm going to crash um, and I didn't end up being called by Hollywood after that. I was, I was, I was surprised. Also, the bands around that time, Spandu Ballet. Yes, they were beginning to get into this chanty and funk kind of thing. And there was a band called Fashion, which I really liked. I don't. I think they were on Polydor. They didn't have much success, but they were trying American funk with uh, new wave uh, techno music. Those are, those are my thoughts. Anyway, there's Heroes Never Die. Now on to track three, a track called Time Waits for No One. Um, oh, yeah, Heroes Never Die. Another thing, <laughs> I'll go back here, is it followed Dancing in Heaven on some 
side too, which I think is a particularly hard thing to do. I think that didn't help it actually that heroes followed dan dancing in heaven because you're in this incredibly high energetic place, then you're dragged immediately into an emotional place. I think it was tough for heroes. Now, getting back, uh, hopefully no more thoughts about heroes never die. Um, time waits for no one. Track three on side two. Love this track too. This was started primarily by Brian. Uh, it's really his song, the way he started it, and I started to get involved with him after that. It's Brian singing the track as well, and we were very influenced, as I said, by the tubes, and I think Brian Brian took, a, took from those elements as well, um, that Completion Backward Theory album we loved. Um, it's got a rock principle about it, but that great bass line that's walking, I think, has also that funk thing. We put a lot of phaser on that great bass line that Brian created. And uh, that chant at the front, uh, at the beginning, you know, hey, Jack, get off your back. That's me wanting to make it a little more princey. I remember in the studio I said, let's try this, Brian, just to give it this Q-Phil swing, hey, Jack, get off your back, um, and get to work. Um, that's uh, by me being prince uh, with... with um, with Brian, at, just as we were finishing the song, we went back and added that. And Brian's great, um, really, funk guitar on this as well. Got a princey vibe. Um, I remember us talking about that with that Jack, 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 um, that Prince uh, Minneapolis uh, rhythm guitar part. Um, Brian went in and did that, and we felt good about that. Also, um, the solo Brian's doing. I mean, it's so melodic. I mean, that may, I th again, I think that's why you can hear that we were influenced by uh, those bands uh, which were like Bosgags, Toto, whatever. A melodic uh, Brian solo, I think, is beautiful. The rudiments of this track were done at Tapestry on the Fairlight. Again, yes, we programmed the drums and the rhythm and the bass, a lot of it on the Fairlight like then brought it all back to battery studios to do that stuff a uh, beautiful lovely juno 60 keyboard which was really a sound of the 80s in the verse that's brian playing that uh, very uh, thematic juno 60 sound which was on a lot of those 80 records at that time um i want to mention here that when brian and i sang harmonies together they really had a sound we really did well singing harmonies together with my brighter um more tenor vibe and brian had a lower a lower tone uh, and so when we we mixed our harmonies together they it was a sound which I felt good about. Now this track was uh, sampled by um, Duck Sauce, a pretty pretty well-known band. You'll find it on YouTube, um, and it's a bit like the, the 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 Daft Punk vibe. They did a really good job, sped the track up, and played around with it. So time waits for no one has been sampled, which seems to be the big thing. If you had your song sampled, you're a success. And Duck Sauce uh, did a version of this. Um, before uh, let's play the track anyway. Before I keep on talking, uh, a phrase comes to mind which. I I read yesterday it says the 80s is not a place but a state of mind here's time waits for no one
beautiful guitar harmonics there on the end from Brian Fairweather um, and uh, a little bit of that Juno 60 sequencer I can hear on the end as well so that's Time Waits for No One and that's track 3 on side 2 of the Q-Phil album this is a Radio Owl's Nest special uh, episode 46 and a half a half. this is the uh, second part of the story of the uh, Q-Phil album from 1982 and now we come to the last track on the album um, 4 tracks on side 1 four tracks on side two strange isn't it these days with uh, digital we can put three million tracks on but uh, in those days um, eight tracks is well enough for a vinyl record um, red light zone now this is an unusual track for us to put on the end of this record we didn't really want to put it on the album it wasn't uh, really written for q feel uh, it was a b-side to uh, one of our singles and uh, as you can tell it's unusual for us it's a reggae track we're playing it live before we even did the q Feel uh, record because when Dancing in Heaven started to be a hit in America, uh, the record company said, Time for an album. And so we ran back in to do these tracks and they said, uh, We want you to put Red Light Zone on. And I think that was just because they wanted to fill up the album. We only had about, I think, uh, a week to do the whole album. Um, uh, so I think with Red Light Zone, they said, Put that on the end. It's going to fill it up. And Brian and I weren't really happy about that at all we went with it because we were just happy to have an album but red light zone was not constructed for that it was written a long time before the q phil album in fact it was nearly one of our first ever covers as songwriters manhattan transfer um showed a great interest in it and we thought red light zone is going to be our first uh, major cover that didn't happen and it became a q phil song um for some reason <laughs> i think to fill a spot um this Brian song, great, great chord sequence and um, beautiful bass line. He taught me the bass line. Uh, he had the bass line already worked out when he came to my, my flat and he said, double me and uh, do some flourishes around that. So it's a really, really, really great chord sequence, I think. And also looking at the lyrics, I was thinking, here is uh, Brian writing about street scenes again, a prostitute. And I just noticed on Time Waits for No One, he's talking about a wino on the street. So... I don't know what Brian's been involved in or what he was involved in just before he wrote those songs. Uh, we won't go farther than that. Um, uh, it is a live track, as you just like um, when you think about it. We 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 did um, Doctor on the Radio, I think, a bit before that, and we were still using the band live. So that's Trevor Thornton. He always plays great reggae drums. He plays great reggae. Uh, that's Trevor playing. Chris Richardson playing a beautiful piano that was in the studio. It might have been a Steinway. I hope it was. I think it was. Um, and Chris went in and we let him be free on the end and play beautiful jazz soloing um, he played some just gorgeous piano on the end of the song I think he was quite surprised that we said you're free you're free do what you want play to the vortex do what you want and he was like really <laughs> We said yes, so he went into uh, such a musical guy, Chris. I mean, he was the accordion champion of England, I think, when he was nine years old, something like that. So, um, just a great musician. Lucky to have him involved with Qfil, and uh, we miss him a great deal. Sadly missed. Um, we thought uh, also Red Light Zone um, actually disrupts the tempo of the album. You know, we just thought not only is it a different sound for us, we thought um, tempo-wise it wasn't the right call. And in fact, I remember when we put the Qfil album i think it was a review from canada or something and it said this q feel record's all right but all the tempos are all the bloody same and i thought well we're a dance band uh you can't dance really to 52 beats per minute um 
<laughs> well, you could, but you'd be dead. Uh, so we thought, yes, red light zone is not really our thing. But over the years, over the years, and uh, some of the reviews that came in for QFIL, they said there's a sophistication in that red light zone. I think Heroes Never Die and Red Light Zone sh- showed that Brian and I had harmonic strengths beyond just being a, a dance band. Uh, Brian sings a great vocal, um, lovely vocal, um, and he has that tone. I mean, we were also into UB40 and the beat around that time so i think uh, brian really got uh, a great lead vocal on this track i think trevor's also playing some live percussion timbales around the end um uh, but let me play it to you because i'm very proud of this song i'm very proud that brian and i wrote it together and uh, here it is uh, track four on side two of the qfil album red light zone
Lovely to hear that fade. Chris Richardson playing uh, Freedom uh, Piano on the end. And on the front of this track, I didn't mention that's Brian Whistling. Now, I can't hardly bloody whistle at all. Uh, and Brian can whistle in... He's got... Well, Brian has perfect ear. He's one of those few musicians that if you play a note, he can go, that's A flat, or that's F. And he can whistle really well. So that's Brian whistling on the front of Red Light Zone. That's the last track on the Qfil album, Side 2 from 1982. Uh, this is a special about this album, and we've come almost to the end of it. Um, I've had a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope uh, some of the things there that uh, I can remember actually uh, spiced up your day. And uh, uh, in particular, this record, I think um, it's a great shame that Jive Records at that time, when we were one of the very, very first releases of that label back then, they didn't have the capability to break the band um, it's a shame I think we could have made another record or another album I think Dancing in Heaven should have been a top 20 uh, track and I'm saying that because MTV if they had a video of the band at that time when MTV just started to explode I think Dancing in Heaven would have made its way up into the charts people do think that Dancing in Heaven was a top 10 hit well it wasn't uh, because it became a cult record and everybody assumed because it was played a great deal that it was um, it's a shame again that Jive Records ne never really saw Qfil as a viable band. Now some final thoughts um, I mean the band became great friends to me. I do have a memory that when Brian and I were writing Rhythm Machine Electric Feet uh, in the summer I think in my flat in Ockenden Road we I can remember it so well because we were sat in my little bedroom playing the track over and writing lyrics together but it was hard to write lyrics because we just could not stop laughing. Uh, we were such, uh, we had such great time together and we, we so fitted each other uh, but I remember that day was I was saying we've got to get this track finished we've got to do it tomorrow and so was Brian saying yes let's let's nail it but all we did was bloody laugh and I remember the, the windows went up it was summer and we were looking down onto Ockenden Street in Islington while people were walking by in the heat yes heat in England and that remains in my mind I was so lucky to have Brian Fairweather as my partner in the band very lucky to have Trevor Thornton who I'd met through the band Charlie Mullen Band CMB and Chris Richardson through that same band. Uh, four musicians that really, I think, um, got on as friends. And if you get on as friends and you all respect each other, well, uh, it made the whole process a delight. Very lucky to have Nigel Green as the engineer for this record, along with Mike Shipley, who I still miss to this day. And um, uh, all the ingredients for actually making Dancing in Heaven and the album came together in a very, very warm, spirited and vibrant way. Good people. Lucky to have Diane Poncher in 1981. I met her in Los Angeles. My partner and the manager who um, basically saw the potential of Dancing in Heaven. She would play that record to the uh, to her management company daily and go to all the record uh, shops in Los Angeles, Tower Records and all of them and say, where's Dancing in Heaven? Where's this band's Q-Fill? And she would call the radio stations and request the song. Uh, I don't think Dancing in Heaven in Los Angeles really would have been quite as big without uh, Diane Titch Poncher. And remember, we gave nicknames uh, to everybody <laughs> there is Nigel Mono Green there is Diane Titch Poncher she's only about 5 foot 5 and there is um, Stephen Howard from Record Company man of incredible girth I won't go into that at this point so I think we're going to finish on the single mix of Dancing in Heaven for this show and I'm just going to tell you again a few little tidbits about Dancing in Heaven this is a single mix I'm going to play you with the classical version uh, on the front an unusual version actually my thoughts about Dancing in Heaven that we were always going around in my head as we did the 
these shows is that it had an emotional content to it. The chorus chords of A flat major seventh going to B flat. The major seventh makes it feel very celestial and and emotional. Um, I remember, remember Clive Calder, the head of the record company, said, "I need you to sing this again." Um, I, I think you can get a better vocal uh, and do it in a day and we just mixed it with Shipley I thought crazy I went down to the studio spoke to the engineer and I said I don't really want to sing this again he goes I don't want to mix it again it sounds fine so we sat in the studio for seven hours with the lights down uh, reading newspapers uh, pretending that we were working then I went upstairs and played it to the head of the record company and it was the same mix exactly the same mix we did nothing on it and Clive Calder said that's exactly what I wanted that's brilliant and I said I'm so pleased that you made me sing it again <laughs> behind my breath I remember my manager Diane telling me that when we did the Eurovision Song Contest just before we went on stage we all got together and did a big sort of kind of meditation in darkness and she said that the whole band was meditating before we went on and she said a couple of other people artists walked by opened the door and looked at these people dressed as spacemen meditating in darkness and they all thought my god we're up against it there are some aliens next door but that's how dedicated we were and the last thought is i wonder if dancing in heaven had become a huge hit and we had to stay with the record company and we had a very bad deal with them what would have happened to my songwriting career um i'm not sure um i wanted the record to be a hit but it might have uh, taken me away from my uh, journey towards uh, songwriting um, but it, Dancing in Heaven did lead me to Bernie Taupin and Earth, Wind and Fire and many other situations so that's just a thought I can't answer thank you for being here for the Q-Feel part 2 episode 46 and a half uh, show uh, it was great for the for the over these two hours to to relive relive the atmosphere so thank you our heads for joining me and um, we're going to go out on playing the seven inch unusual mix of dancing in heaven with the classical intro on the front and we'll finish by saying the 80s is not a place but it's a state of mind see you later pagey <laughs> <laughs>